0: When disaster strikes, chaos is often the result. However, it appeared to the public that when the Minneapolis Bridge Collapse happened, systems were in place, and chaos was replaced by planned programming. What happened prior to, during, and after the Minneapolis Bridge Collapse to allow for such coordination of efforts? Thank you for listening to this special report on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom. President, Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses, and our guest is Dr. John Hick, Medical Director for Emergency Preparedness at Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis, and first responder to the scene of the Minneapolis bridge collapse. Dr. Hick and I are discussing the importance of incident management, even in the worst of times. Dr. Hick, welcome to Reach MD.
1: Thanks so much, Bruce.
0: When a disaster like a bridge collapsing in rush hour hits, how do you control the chaos?
1: Well, you really have to implement an incident management plan uh, pretty quickly, and that's one of the most important parts about trying to figure out what you're dealing with, what you need to do to make sure that you get the right resources to the right place at the right time to be of assistance. And it's not one person, it really is um, all folks, all responders understanding what the framework of the response is and working within that framework and making sure that you maintain what's called a span of control, that you never have more than about five people answering directly to you. And if you feel like that's exceeding that, then you need to kind of subdivide things again to make sure that those supervisors have authority over groups of folks uh, that may have to subdivide again to make sure that you're always keeping tabs on on what's going on and getting in information from just, you know, a few sources so that you don't get overloaded and and have a chance to step back, assess the situation, and then set some objectives for what are we going to do next.
0: Have you ever had something happen like a bridge collapsing before?
1: We've never had anything of this magnitude before. Um, The scale of this and the number of different places we had to access victims from pretty much trounced our, our previous experiences, as well as most of the exercises that we've had, quite honestly.
0: So if you didn't ever plan for this, how were you quickly able to implement incident management after the bridge collapse?
1: Well, our EMS uh, duty supervisor, Tom Ward, fortunately has a good deal of background in, in incident management, as do most of our EMS supervisors. And so, when the initial assignments were made for uh, bridge collapse, victims in the water, it wasn't clear that it was the 35W bridge. And so, the responders to the scene, you know, were faced with something that a scale of which they had not uh, really experienced. Tom immediately took responsibility as EMS branch director and the crew is using their incident response plan and there's one incident response plan that's on a single piece of basically laminated paper that's in every truck um, in every agency across the metro area they basically you know pulled that out if they needed to but they broke down to transport and triage officers and began assessing their areas and reporting back to Tom and saying this is what we got this is what we need this is where we are And then Tom quickly assigned additional supervisors and broke things into a North and South division, and we further broke that down to upstream and downstream sectors uh, later on just to maintain that span of control so we had good information flow, we understood you know, kind of what was happening and and where. So just getting that initial scene size up, getting the information back from the crews that were already doing their standard operating procedures under an incident management structure, um, fitting into that structure already, feeding information back, getting additional supervisors on scene, and and assigning them to, in this case, to geographic divisions to help break down some of the responsibilities. It's those things that really help to get things uh, under control quickly. The other thing that's really important is that EMS is working very closely in what we call a unified command format, that EMS and fire and police get together as quickly as possible. Um, And Tom, you know, had to move around a little bit to, uh, to get together with those folks. But once you've done that, then you've got to be elbow to elbow and communicating about what is going on, where do you guys need resources, how are things going.
0: So you say the whole emergency disaster plan is on one sheet of laminated paper. Can you tell us what that looks like?
1: The Emergency Medical Services uh, Incident Response Plan for the Metro is basically a five sided fold out that is in the cab of uh, every ambulance in the area. And on the first page is uh, initial incident actions for first in truck. And so if you're the first truck coming in to an area, it just breaks down one person assumes triage responsibility, the other person assumes transport responsibility. Your communication is with the EMS, you know, branch director. Uh, if assigned, if it's not assigned, then the transport person becomes the EMS branch director until there's a supervisor on scene. There's an organizational chart that shows you know, where people fall in the general hierarchy. There are triage criteria for patients, and then there are task cards for first-arriving supervisor for you know, the first-arriving ambulance, as we talked about, for subsequent ambulances, and for the staging officer. And so all those are, are on basically a single laminated sheet of paper that's a legal-sized uh, paper. How much
0: would you say in a disaster like this is dependent on emergency preparedness, and how much on basic human response or people taking responsibility for things they have to do?
1: excellent question. I think really it's honestly a 50-50, but you have to make sure that the actions that your responders are taking are in continuity with an incident response plan, um, that they're breaking out the responsibilities, and then you let their training take over, because you don't need to teach me and I don't need to teach you how to take care of a patient. What incident management is all about is not about redirecting those standard operating procedures, that balance of education and skills that the provider brings, but it's making sure those skills and those providers are in the right number in the right place at the right time. And that's what incident management is all about, is about assessing those needs and organizing a response to make sure that you can do your SOPs and that they're effective and that you've got enough responders to be able to effectively cope with the incident.
0: If you've just tuned into this special report, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on REACH MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I am speaking with Dr. John Hick, the first emergency response physician on the scene at the Minneapolis Bridge disaster. So can you tell us the difference between incident management in the initial rescue phase versus the recovery phase of something like this?
1: That's a key distinction uh, for one is that in the rescue phase, you know, you're willing to kind of take, you know, civilian help and, you know, even though that puts the civilians at a little bit more risk, uh, you're willing to take a little bit more provider risk with um, scene hazards, whether it's down power lines, et cetera, in order to accomplish rescues and, and save lives. During the recovery phase, you will not take those same risks. It is, it is not worth it because you are essentially in a recovery mode at that point for property or for fatalities the incident management shifts greatly too and in the reactive phase you are often trying to gather information you're behind the curve you're behind on resources you know you're trying to scrape up what information you can and and throw what resources you can to those areas that seem to need it all you're interested in doing is kind of getting control of the fire essentially Um, even though there, there wasn't a fire here you've just got to kind of put some boundaries around things once you've put boundaries around it once things have stabilized and you have a better picture and you have resources then you can move into a proactive phase and say now what's next and what resources do I need to accomplish those objectives and how can I start to be proactive in anticipating resource needs and moving out of that I'm behind the curve to I'm the head of, ahead of the curve. It's moving from what we call the reactive to the proactive phase of incident management. And you want that transition to occur as early in the incident as possible because that tends to imply that you're going to have a more successful response.
0: And how quickly were you able to get from the reactive to the proactive phase in this tragedy?
1: Quite honestly, I think we got to the proactive phase about um, 50% of the way through the rescue phase, although Tom Ward, who is the MS branch director, feels otherwise. Um, his analogy was that he felt like Lieutenant Dan on the mast of the ship in the movie Forrest Gump during the hurricane, that he was you know, just being buffeted and, and couldn't see anything and had no idea what was going on, and, and yet you know, the ship was still sailing on. I think he does not give himself nearly enough credit, but I think you do feel like that during that reactive phase because you always feel like you're behind the curve. And yet all of your personnel are out there doing the jobs they need to be doing and in conjunction with their incident response plan. So the work is getting done and you're building toward that moment where you can move to a proactive response. And clearly we moved to a proactive response when all of a sudden it was very clear to us that all the casualties were off the scene. And that was a little bit of almost of an unexpected moment, you know, because you're continuing to sweep, do searches, and it's like, guys we're not finding any more casualties. We think the casualties are clear. Boom. We need to move into a rehab and recovery phase here. Where are the firefighters we need to start supporting for rehab? How can we do that? And I think that was clearly the concrete transition point we made was right at the end of the rescue phase. But I would say we were moving towards into a proactive mode before that, even though Tom didn't feel that that was the case.
0: And what time did the whole disaster start for you?
1: The bridge went down at 6.05 p.m. The initial message was sent to the EMS physicians, hospitals, and EMS agencies at um, 6.07, and I was on scene at 6.18, and we had all of the casualties off the scene by twenty hundred hours or by 8 o'clock, so an hour and 53 minutes after the initial 911 call.
0: And how many casualties was that?
1: We transported 50 by EMS, and then there were additional walk-in casualties, about a total of 80 that evening. And then subsequently, other people presented to hospitals on a delayed basis in the following days with back pain and other uh, musculoskeletal injuries for a total of 127 patients.
0: And as you started the emergency preparedness right after 6.15 p.m., what were you expecting as the surge capacity
1: Well, we knew that the hospitals were quite full and the the emergency medical services systems were busy uh, that evening. So, you know, I think it was a little unclear, you know, what we'd be able to generate. And and yet on the EMS level, we were able to to dedicate about 20 ambulances to that scene very rapidly with excellent help from our mutual aid partners. And a number of services were able to offer up additional ambulances and put them on the street in addition to their usual staffing. I think we had a total of 30 additional ambulances that were non-scheduled that were added into The system during those hours from about 6 p.m. until midnight in order to balance the rest of the community's uh, EMS needs and the incident's uh, emergency medical services needs. The hospitals also very quickly ramped up their surge capacity in in a very impressive fashion. And I can only speak for HCMC, but this happened at a lot of other hospitals. We were able to to clear 25 ICU beds and have 10 operating rooms up and running by 7 o'clock at night, despite having a very high census at the time of the incident.
0: You also use some pickup trucks and some other non standard vehicles in this rescue effort. How is that decision made, and is that a normal part of rescue and recovery
1: there are no disasters that ever really go or no incidents that ever really go according to script. I think it's sort of like planning to have a baby. You know, you get the nursery ready and you get all your supplies ready and you think you're ready to have a baby and then you have the baby and you realize you don't know anything about having a baby. Um, So, you know, once you get into the event, there are always going to be things that challenge you in new ways and require you to adapt. And and this was one of those situations. We could not get ambulances down to the downstream side on the north end of the river because uh, the road had been cut by the debris and we had a, a service road that terminated in a railroad yard, and so volunteers with pickups and a utility company with a pickup offered to transport those victims, and and a decision was made, you know, on the ground at that level that that would be preferable to trying to wait and figure out how to get ambulances down to that site.
0: Disasters strike when we least expect them, and often chaos is a natural progression. When an incident management plan is in place, physicians can do their job of saving lives. Nothing exemplifies this more than the success of the planning and rescue efforts, when the entire span of the interstate 35W bridge collapsed in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I want to thank our guest, Dr. John Hick, Medical Director for Emergency Preparedness at Hennepin County Medical Center for helping us understand the importance of the plan. I am Attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients to repurposing generic drugs for new uses. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on XM 233 the channel for medical professionals comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.